Well, in my humble yet accurate opinion, that's one of the very best things we do as a church. Uh, just to seeing that, as we say all the time, that the church is not, the, the children are not our future, the children are our church. And we get to sort of look at some bookends from our seniors that we're recognizing this morning to also the commissioning of these households and these homes to raise up children who will be in various forms drenched and exposed to the gospel. And as I was thinking about this morning and all the things we were going to be doing ceremoniously, it got me thinking and remembering of my own childhood and my own sort of humble start to life. And I remember as a kid, at about the age of seven years old, I already had my life mapped out perfectly. It was going to go exactly the way I wanted it to, just like all of your lives have gone completely from A to B in a linear fashion. There's been no zigging, no yea, verily, has there been any zagging either. It's gone exactly as you had planned. Hard no. But when I was seven years old, all I ever wanted to do was to be an international technology salesman. That was it. <laughs> Actual photo. I even began to dress that way. Uh, we were so poor, we couldn't afford to pay attention. And so I thought, one of these days, I'm going to travel internationally, and I'm going to make a whole lot of money, finally somehow be able to deal with that Ted Koppel hair that was happening even back then. And that was my dream. And I sort of, without even realizing how to do it, I organized my entire life, my entire thinking, my education, my experience, my early career, my, my study in school was international business and marketing, and I studied French and Spanish and all the things. And then, lo and behold, I became an international salesman for high-end technology solutions, and I traveled all over the world. And it was pretty great, right up until the point when it really wasn't. But I had become the thing. And, and people would ask, hey, so, so what do you do? And I'd say, well, I'm the vice president of sales for an international technology company. And it would sort of like be a gut punch when they went, uh, what? I stopped listening. They, 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 they didn't really care all that much. And truth be told, it was the thing that I had always wanted to be. And people would continue to ask me, what do you do? You ever had that experience? Someone comes up to you, hi, I'm such and such. What's your name? What's your name? What do you do? What they're really asking you is, how are you named? How are you called? How are you known? And in our culture and society, what we do vocationally is largely what defines us to a fault. But after a while, that world of traveling internationally, eating a whole lot of airport hot dogs and all the irreparable damage that certainly did to my GI tract, after several times of getting off of an airplane, going to a conference room, eating at some Applebee's for the 75th time, I realized it was all pretty lame. And the thing that I wanted to be named by, the thing I wanted to be called, the thing that I wanted to be my identity was actually pretty hollow and fragile and temporal. Until one fateful July 4th weekend, I was out shooting fireworks in my front yard, which was probably illegal. Oh, well. This was in Houston. They're busy with other things. And I got a voicemail from my boss, the CEO of the company, who coincidentally uh, was British, headquartered in Cambridge, England. And on July 4th, I think there was some poetry there, on July 4th, he called and left a voicemail on my Motorola StarTech flip phone. That's right. Can I get an amen for the flip phone? Yeah, 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 yeah. And he basically just said a couple sentences. Uh, we're going in a new direction. Your time is complete. You're done. I'll send you an envelope to send back your computer. And that was it. That was it. I'd never spoken to him since. I'm sure he's not listening to this sermon either. 
So suddenly, the thing that I thought I was, the way I had been called, the name I had given myself, no longer exists. And so I would meet people and say, well, what do you do? And I'd say, not particularly much of anything. I'm an international technology salesman that doesn't travel internationally and has no technology to sell. And so I'm nothing. It's, it's a painful gut punch. You might even go so far as to call it disintegration, or what the Bible will call hell. Now, some of you this morning know exactly what that feels like in some way, form, or fashion, or another. There's a disintegration of life that comes from being named by the wrong little g God. Some of you have wrapped your whole identity up in what you do vocationally, or don't get too pious, the rest of you. Some of you have wrapped your whole identity, your whole life, and your meaning on your family role. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a whatever I might be, and, and I am defined by that. Some of you have decided that your wealth or your education or your personality is what will get you by. It's what will help you make your life work and make your life work better than others, you might add. In other words, you've decided to be named by the thing you think will help you. Now, as I'm saying this, I want you to take some actual honest inventory. What is it that you think will make life work? Some of you have decided to be named by the thing that you think will help you. Well, this morning... We're going to hear the very words of Jesus teach about having a name. And so our big idea for our morning, very briefly, is going to go like this. Whatever you make your help becomes who you are. Whatever you make your help becomes who you are. So choose wisely. If you got your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We're going to parachute right into the center of the Gospel of Luke. I don't typically like to do that, but because we were talking about senior recognition and home dedication, uh, this seemed like in an appropriate passage, and it might sound strange in a moment. Luke chapter 16, I'm going to begin reading all the way through the text, this whole section, verse 19 to 31. I'm going to read through it, we'll unpack it, we'll apply it. That's the plan. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. Jesus is speaking. He's up on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, a little fishing village called Capernaum, where he does a lot of his earthly ministry before he finally heads south to go to Jerusalem to his impending death. Now, you kind of need to know that. File that away for later. Verse 19. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. I've had bad days. That's a bad day. All right. Lunch? Anyone? Anyone? The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. See, I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convicted or convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. The teachings of Jesus, teaching his own disciples, teaching the Pharisees who were gathered around trying to build a case to end his ministry, trying to build a case to end his life. Jesus is trying to get everyone who will hear his voice to think differently about God. You have to know that. As Jesus engages all these people in the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, they all thought they were right about God. Everybody generally does. Nobody actually is. Did you know that? Nobody is completely right about God. Theology is a human endeavor. Therefore, there is something at some level that each of us are wrong about God. And so we are invited to repentance, to rethink our thinking, to regularly and rightly think about our God. It is the most important thing about us. And so Jesus tells these stories to prevent some from understanding, but to really amplify and elaborate to those who are getting it, trying to help them understand what God is like, what he does, who they therefore are. Now, you have to understand there's some context here. In Luke 14 and 15, he's just told a little triad, three quick little parables talking about that which is lost. There's a, there's a, a woman with a lost coin. There's a, a person, a shepherd with a lost sheep. And then there's a father with a lost son. And the whole point of those parables, even though we got the famous parable of the prodigal son, the point of those parables is that Jesus is the kind of father that cares desperately about the lost. You have to understand that's the, that's the runway to get to chapter 16, that God is a father who cares desperately about that which is lost. God is a father who goes to all sorts of shameful, shameful ways to offer help. In that parable of the prodigal, he tucks up his robe and quite, it's a tough text, he runs and in doing so exposes his old man legs. Ugh, I know. That's what God goes to. He goes to make help for those who need. But what happens when people are in need of his help, reject his help, and instead try to make their own help? That is the parable of Luke 16. So it might sound strange. I have had this conversation with uh, our worship team backstage. That's right. On the morning we're doing baby dedication and senior recognition, I'm preaching about hell. It's been called the most unpopular of, un, of uh, orthodox doctrines, and for a good reason. A number of years ago, a comedian, Will Ferrell, tweeted, and this is what he said, Hell is for anyone that teaches children that it actually exists. And then it was subsequently re retweeted, almost immediately, tens of thousands of times. 
In 2010, so it's been a minute, and so it hasn't improved. In 2010, the Barna Group did an evangelical survey of Christians in America. Of all evangelical Christians, they did a survey. What they found was that 60-plus percent of professing and confessing evangelical Christians in America do not believe that hell or Satan are literal, actual, real things. They're just concepts and ideas. And so if you happen to be one of those people that believes in actual hell and Satan, you are now in the minority among evangelicalism. But it's Jesus that talks about hell. In fact, Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. He talks about it a lot. It's as though Jesus is creating this black, inky velvet as a backdrop so that the brilliance and the gemstone of the gospel can shine more brightly. If it was just Paul or John or Luke or Matthew or Peter or Isaiah or David or Moses that talked about hell, it would be really hard to take. It would be really hard to receive. But it is Jesus himself as a demonstration of the help that God offers, as a demonstration of life of light and of love. So we have to understand the darkness so that we can really understand, appreciate, and affectionate the gospel. So let's talk a little bit about this parable. Jesus talks a lot about hell. And I should tell you, I've had conversations with other pastors, ministers, other believers, even downstairs in our coffee shop, and they'll say, ah, I like a lot of what Jesus says, but I don't care for what he says about hell. Clever, cute, sorry, no good. You don't get to pick and choose what Jesus says. If Jesus is Lord at all, he is Lord of all. And if he teaches on it, it is for us to know and understand. So let me quickly walk back through this parable, and then we'll see if we can apply it. There's a rich man who was clothed in purple. Purple doesn't happen naturally in the wild. There are no purple cloths just happening out there. You have to get expensive, heavy fabrics, wools, and then you have to buy the expensive dye, and you have to make it purple. Very expensive, very costly, very elitist. He was clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, the fine linen refers to his silken undergarments. (laughs) Every step this guy takes is like a spa treatment. (laughs) Our elders know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying? Like, they just, just, oh, it's just, oh, yes, that was nice. Oh, it's so good. Beautiful purple garments, fine linen undergarments. And he feasted sumptuously every day. This wasn't once in a while. This is just, hey, I'm awake, therefore I think I'll go full on Henry VIII here and just eat everything in sight. Right? He's, he's lacking for nothing. And at his gate, oh, he lives in a gated community. Not that big of a deal these days. It sure was in ancient Israel. What we're hearing here is he's essentially royalty. Now, he's not because Israel had been occupied by Rome, but he's effectively royalty. He's that level of asset rich and wealthy. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. So this guy's apparently crippled because he's not walking there. He's he's put there by somebody. Where would you put him? Well, you put him at the richest guy's house in town. And it says he's covered with sores. Now, you and I, we're Westerners. You and I are in the 21st century, and our minds, because of our Greek background, instantly begins to make a contrast and a comparison. Oh, there's a rich man, there's a poor man. That's not what Jesus' hearers would have picked up on. Hold that thought. 
At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, so this isn't leprosy. This is some horrible hemorrhaging dermatological condition that apparently was appetizing to dogs. What is Jesus doing? Come on. It's in the text. Why is Jesus going to those lengths of detail? Because he's trying to say this guy is the personification of misery. He is a natural disaster. You've got to see this. He's not just down on his luck. He is a natural disaster. All that the world can promise has produced that. Someone so foul, miserable, helpless that even the dogs, not the sweet little Pomeranians, no, just the street urchin, mangy mutts and hounds would come by to lick this guy. He is a natural disaster. And the rich man never bothered to see the wreckage. We say that all the time from the downtown campus. Here we are in the heart of an urban center. As we walk around, as we think and talk and pray with people around us, do you see the wreckage? Are you allowing yourself to see the wreckage? This guy was the wreckage. And the rich man had no time, no need for him whatsoever. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now, you have to remember, this is a parable. This is not Jesus' systematic theology on the doctrine of personal eschatology. He's giving some things that we're not saying are bedrock certainties. It's, a, it's the way this has to happen for the story to work. He's dead. It's the idea is that his soul is born to Abraham's side. Okay, so, so keep that in mind. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. We don't even know if he was buried or just dragged off by the We don't know. The rich man also died, and he was buried, probably in an opulent sort of fashion, and in Hades. Now, without getting too nerdy and wordy here, this is Hades. This is the, the Hebrew equivalent of Sheol, the grave, after death. It is not the same thing as hell. Hell is everlasting. Hell is eternal. Hades is a temporary holding area for people in the Old Testament. kind of have to know that. It's, it's, it's another sermon for another time, but there's a difference between Hades and hell. Gehenna and Tartarus and the other different words that are used for the everlasting, the lake of fire after the great white throne judgment. Nerd alert. This is a temporary holding pattern. There is consciousness. There is awareness. All right? And in Hades, being in torment, not torture. There are not giant buzzards flying around eating his liver every time he wakes up. That's weird iconography, not real. Torment. It's not pleasant, but it is not torture. He lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Oh, that's interesting. He knows this guy's name, as it turns out. And he called out, Father Abraham. Oh, so he's, this rich man is Jewish. It's one of the tip-offs. Jesus is very cleverly, because he's in Capernaum, which was also full of Gentiles, but he's teaching the Pharisees, his disciples, and those gathered around. This is a Jewish rich man, which they would have picked up on and said, oh, he must be righteous. Because the Jews equated wealth with righteousness. Can just imagine a civilization or a society that thinks people who have more money are better. <laughs> no, you'd never, no, it's crazy. Never mind. He cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And get me out of here! Not in the text. That's the shocker. No, no. 
Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Not roaring, tumultuous fire, flame. Hold that thought. We'll come back to that in a moment. Notice this guy. Even in the afterlife, he's still barking out orders. I just need a boost. I don't need escape. I don't need rescue. I don't need to get out of here. I just need a little bit of help. Not a complete help. I got this. I got this. I can fix this. Have you heard yourself say that? I got this. I can fix this. But as my dad used to tell me sometimes angrily, sometimes violently, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. The rich man simply continues to dig. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Remember the flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Now let me, let me make a quick comment here. No, this is not current reality. People who are dead and who are not believers are not having conversations with people who are dead who are believers, and they're not challenging one another to Red Rover games. It's not that. It's just an example so that the parable works. In fact, the next verse is going to tell us there's actually a a chasm fixed by God so that there is no interaction. It's just a dialogue that Jesus is saying in a rabbinic fashion to make the story make sense. And besides, verse 26 all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And so, no Bible-believing Christian, regardless of their age, regardless of their experience, no Bible-believing Christian should ever believe in ghosts. I don't know what's in your attic, but you should probably call the raccoon patrol. <laughs> It's not ghosts. Might be something else going on. Might even be something spiritual happening in there. It ain't ghosts. God has fixed a chasm. No disembodied human spirit can return to the planet because God says so. So there might be something happening in there. You might have a lot of possums eating up your 1980s prom dress, but it ain't ghosts. And so think theologically, think correctly. And he said, verse 27, then I beg you, Father, Send him to my father's house. I know what I'll do. If he's not going to at least give me a, just, just a drop of water on my tongue, send him to my father's house. Why? Because I have five brothers. So that he may warn them, lest they also come into his place, this place of torment. Now, that might sound noble to you. It is not. He's blame shifting. Give them a fair shake, Abe. Nobody came back from the dead and showed me, or I would have believed. But if you send Lazarus back from the dead... They'll all believe. That's what he's saying. If, if you would have been good enough to give him a sign, to give me a sign, I would have believed. Be good enough to give them a sign, and they'll believe. You ever heard anyone say that? You ever heard anyone say that in your mirror? If God would just give me a sign, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Listen to what Abraham says. But Abraham said, verse 29, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, scriptures, Moses, the Pentateuch, Torah, and the prophets. Everything from uh, basically the end of Judges all the way through Malachi. They have access to the holy words of God. That is enough. You need no other ecstatic experience, no sign, no wonder, no power, nothing. 
The scriptures are sufficient. If you're not going to listen to scripture, a sign will do you no good. And he said, no, Father. I mean, can you imagine? This guy's in Hades. He's in torment, and he's arguing with Father Abraham. How's that going to go for you? No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They just need a sign. Like I would have repented if I got a sign. Abraham said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. Because in fact, later, another person named Lazarus would rise from the dead. And did all of those Jews repent and believe? No. They decided, we got to kill him again or everyone's going to believe in Jesus. That's the flesh of the human heart. Oh, there's no arguing that Lazarus, the other one from John chapter 11, was alive. Their reaction was not belief. It was to put to death the one who had done this thing because he threatened their status and their control. So what does this all mean? What does this mean to us? What do you think the biggest difference is between the rich man and, and Lazarus? If you think that it's because one is rich and one is poor, then we've missed the point of this parable and the teaching of Jesus completely. Jesus' hearers would have picked up on it immediately. One of them was named, one of them was not. You have to read Luke 16, that it's right dead center. It is the hinge of Jesus' parabolic teachings in Luke. One of them is named, one of them is not. This is the only parable that Jesus ever tells in which a character is named. Only. Why is that? Probably because Lazarus is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Eliezer, which means God is my help. Now you have to know that. Lazarus had made God his help. The rich man had made himself his help. The rich man had made his assets his help. The rich man had made his opulence, his reputation, his prestige, his own glory, his help. And just like being an international technology salesman, once it was gone, it was gone. And therefore so was I. And therefore so was the rich man. Disintegration was occurring. And we're not told of any of the egregious sins of the rich man. No violence, no extortion. So why was he in Hades? Because he was rich? No, because of what he did with what he had. What sends a person to hell is making anything other than God your help. Please hear that again. What sends a person to hell is making God anything other than God your help. Old philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. Sin is building your identity on anything other than God. If you make wealth your identity, your point, and that's all that you are, and it gets taken away, then there's nothing left of you. You're just a rich man without any riches. Pitiful, pathetic, in hell. Anything external that you make your identity makes you cosmically hollow. See, the godly people, they enjoy earthly treasures, but those things are not their God. Whereas the ungodly, they enjoy God and his blessings, but they will not have him as their God. Lazarus's poverty was not what sent him to heaven. He had apparently, we're not told exactly why by Jesus, he had made God his help. It was his name. His identity had nothing to do with his externals. Do you see how miserable and wretched and wrecked he was? I am he whose help is God. That's my name. Is that your name? I am he whose help 
is God. At both of their death, each of their reality exploded like a thermonuclear bomb. I want you to think about that because it comes for us all and those we love. At your death, your actual reality explodes for both of them. And where is Lazarus? Well, Abraham's side. That's a strange expression. It just means paradise. That's what Jesus says to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise until such time as I come for those saints and I take them to the very presence of God himself everlastingly. Whatever you make your help becomes who you are. So just a few quick implications or principles that we can take away from this passage. We'll apply it. We'll be done. Number one goes like this. Hell is where people get to keep the name they've made for themselves for all eternity. Hell is where people get to keep the name they've made for themselves for all eternity. Is there anything wrong with being wealthy? No. Being wrong with being a mother? No. Even the pleated jeans, that's totally fine. Nothing wrong with being a mom. Nothing wrong with being wealthy. Nothing wrong with being a lawyer, an engineer, or an accountant. Nothing wrong with that at all. But if you are only those things... Is that all you are? If you lost that thing, what would you be? See, Jesus is actually very cleverly, go figure because he's a second member of the Godhead Trinity, teaching us something very important about hell that our children and our students all need to hear, know, understand, and live. Hell is basically two things. Hell is disintegration. That's what it is. Fire. The rich man says he's in the flame. Fire is merely a rearranging of constituent parts. Fire doesn't make anything cease to exist. It just rearranges them. The Bible says again and again that sin is disintegration. Sin is fire. It takes what God makes and it rearranges it to something grotesque and ill-equipped to live the life God made for it. Colossians 1 verse 17 says that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is integration. Do you see that? But people who have tried for so long to be away from God finally will be. The disintegrating work of this life will finally be culminated in the next. The more we center on ourselves, the more angry we get. We experience implosion. That is hell already and not yet. Number two, hell is justice. It's actually the most fair and just doctrine in the Bible. Look, it's crazy that the rich man never asks for forgiveness. We have this cultural misrepresentation, misunderstanding that hell is full of all these people desperately clawing and scratching at the door, desperately wanting to get out, and God keeps slamming the door on their fingers. Nothing could be further from the truth. As C.S. Lewis said, the door is locked from the inside. For all eternity, they simply get more and more what they want to name themselves. Hell is miserable regret and blame shifting. And so, as C.S. Lewis has rightly said, in the end, God gives everyone what they want. What could be more fair? Second point. Heaven is where people get to keep the name God has made for them for all eternity. Now, that's the gospel. Hell is where you get to keep the name you make for yourself for all eternity. Heaven is where people get to keep the name God has made for them for all eternity. So, so let, me, let me help us all, like Jesus, maybe think a little bit differently about this God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're still expecting something other than what God's actually offering. Perhaps you've tried to be religious and obligate God to your cause. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. Doggone it. God has to like me. Nope. He won't play ball. He won't do it. 
Maybe you've tried to be irreligious, just live your own life on your terms, living your truth and be the captain of your soul. You will find yourself woefully and dangerously unqualified for that job. Perhaps you've made some unworthy God your help. It will come crashing down. Will you believe the scriptures, what Jesus calls Moses and the prophets? It attests that there is one who has risen from the dead. Jesus is alive, and therefore he is king, and he is our helper. Did you know that the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, one of his titles is the helper? Maybe you're here this morning, and you've forgotten your name, and perhaps you've forgotten where actual and eternal help comes from. What you do is not who you are. What you achieve and accomplish is not who you are. That would mean that you are your help instead of God, and that's hell on earth. Instead, I want to read a couple psalms and invite you to just let these wash over you. The, the heart of the psalmist, I think, expressing hopefully all of our hearts in response to this text. Psalm 27.9. He says, Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. What if the rich man had have been praying Psalm 27? I don't know, but he never did. Psalm 40, verse 17, As for me, I am poor and needy like Lazarus, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. <laughs> By the way, made heaven and earth. Oh, he's got this. He can handle this. Whatever you make, your help becomes who you are. So final point, consider the Christ. I mean, really. I want you to imagine, in your sanctified imagination, I want you to envision Jesus walking the dusty steps of Capernaum on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he's making eye contact with people. There's his disciples, there's some Pharisees, there's just some riffraff who have gathered around. And he's trying to teach them about a God who runs, exposing his legs to help them. He's just explained what it is to reject that help and the life of disintegration. And he, he, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think's going through his heart and his head? What do you think as he's looking at people? He's going, let me help you. Let me help you. Let me help you. Knowing full well that in a matter of months he was going to go straight south to Jerusalem and climb on a cross voluntarily to experience the full, unmitigated, unrestrained disintegration and justice of God. He took it all so that you and I would never have to feel even a taste, not even the fear of such experience. Jesus becomes all of the disintegration and all of the justice he receives, just as Moses and the prophets said that he would. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Their disintegration, their justice. The doctrine of hell tells us all that Christ did for us and why he loves us. And so, to our graduates, 
to Ethan and Bella, to all these families in the beginning stages of raising up children, I invite you to regularly and rightly take inventory of what really is your help, to be reminded that God is for you. I'm not asking you, I'm not inviting you, I'm not charging you to become experts in the doctrine of hell. Oh, you will have zero friends. I'm not asking you to become experts in the doctrine of hell. I am inviting you to become desperate experts in the gospel. <laughs> Your kids don't need doctrine. They need to see you living and believing the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another every day of their lives. And you will raise up the people that God created them to be. Whatever you make your help becomes who you are. So let's pray together. Father, thanks for the morning. There have been many things going on, many messages, many things for us to consider and contemplate. But God, would you turn our eyes upon Jesus? Give us the capacity to look full in his wonderful face that he took the disintegration and the justice so that we never would. So Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that is still trying to negotiate and barter with you, demonstrating how great they are and how lucky you would be to have them on your team. Would you lead them irresistibly by your spirit into life and light and love and out of death and darkness and defeat? May salvation come to this house. And would you make people make you their help? For the rest of us, Father, who have perhaps forgotten how we are named, I am Eric in Christ, indwelled by the Spirit, loved by the Father, surrounded by the bride. Amen. May we all, Father, remember that is who you have named us and that you are our help. And so we pray these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.